You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. Today, we always appreciate you listening to the program. Today, we're going to be talking markets. Dan Huber of the Huber Report is going to join us in just a moment. And then in segment two, we're going to look at Washington, D.C. Yes, Washington, D.C. Again, David Fairfield, Senior Vice President of Feed at the National Grain and Feed Association is going to be on. We've got a new piece of legislation that could open the doors to greater innovation in feed additives. David will fill us in on that here in just a moment. And then in segment three, we're going to talk with Glenn Tonser. He's been compiling the monthly meat demand monitor. We're going to see how are consumers faring with these high meat prices out there in the meat case. Before we jump into all of that, however, we are going to talk markets. Dan Huber, author of the Huber Report, joins us now. Dan, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. We've got the markets rocking and rolling today, yes, Dan. Yes. After a red day yesterday, did we get any fundamental news that's changed? Well, the only news that was that uh, would change, I guess you would say. Export sales came out, of course, and they've been very sluggish as of late. Uh, had a pretty respectable number in soybeans this past week, so I think that was enough just to get the fire going. Then you add that into the embers of which were already burning, literally and figuratively, because of the dry weather conditions, and it's it's probably just enough to kind of push us up through resistance. Add into that, we've got a three-day weekend coming up here, and probably a few people, particularly on the short side. And as we know, uh, the speculative money has been leaning to the short side of these markets. And you know, maybe it's just time to, to step to the sidelines and uh, let the weather uh, let weather sort itself out here. The speculative money has been sitting on the sidelines, Dan. It, I think a lot of producers are watching this weather rally, hoping it'll be enough to pull some of those speculators back into the grain trade. Have we crossed enough resistance lines here to attract that speculative? money you know I, I certainly there are some long in there but i mean when you look at the, the group when you look at the commitment of traders report they've still been sitting on the short side beans probably at this point back in the long side but uh corn i i they were well over a hundred thousand contracts short a week ago so i don't think they've bought that much this week you know that said i i think you're going to come away from it but i i don't think there's enough there that it's really going to bring them to the long side, at least in a large way. You know, one, we're late enough into the season, you know, generally by that 4th of July, mid-July period, boy, if you're going to get a market move, it's going to happen leading into then, generally not beyond there. So I think, you know, they're probably looking for other pastures that might be just a little more attractive. I don't know if they found them just yet, but I, I, I don't think you're going to see a massive movement in the commodity sector this year. Well, if that's the case, Dan, we've got December corn right now, chain, you know, trading up in the, well, upper 560, 567 and change right. right now. Is is this a point to, to manage some risk? Oh, I believe so. You know, in fact, I uh, once we had uh, seen our spring break, we were kind of estimating that the, that 540 to 560 range would be a great target back on the upside. So so I uh, I would wholeheartedly think this is the time to uh, to go ahead and start locking in, uh, locking in some profits for the fall. Are, are you looking at puts right now, Dan? Are you looking at outright future sales? What do you like in this uncertain environment? You know, I, uh, you, you want to, 
granted, not that it works out every year, but several weeks ago, we had actually promoted the, uh, the purchase of calls with the idea that if we did get this kind of a rally, it would make it very comfortable to sell. And, you know, puts you have to go with a marketing strategy that you feel the most comfortable with, that uh, you have the cash flow with. I mean, the cash flow doesn't always work for people using futures contracts, but there still has to arrive. I mean, there is other contracts that are available in the cash sector. Uh, if, if you could work on a put strategy, absolutely. Uh, keeping in mind that, uh, you, you know, if you're buying puts, you almost need to be selling some kind of an out-of-the-money call to counteract that uh, that delta that you're going to give up when you do that. Uh, again, a little a little more risky than a straight put purchase, but on the same token, less risky than a possible future sale. So, uh, but, but again, you, you do with what your comfort level is and uh, what your marketing IQ is, I guess, for back, sure. back and, a better word. Sure, and potentially what your lender's on board oh, with oh, as certainly. well. you got to make sure they, risk management they, they, is covered everywhere. They need to cooperate, absolutely. Dan, I'm still absolutely stunned by today's move. New crop beans up 35 cents on the day, 12.75 right now november beans same question are you selling at 1275 or do we get, get greedy and wait for 13 you know i uh you know here again it's it, today is an, an impressive move i mean i really thought earlier this week we had probably kind of hit the uh, the upper limit this has pushed us through resistance we didn't think we were going to get through earlier in the week so you know that 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 being said Yes, I think you have to get at least reward it on a scale-up basis and, and take advantage of it because, you know, when, when you look at the picture, and yes, we've got a lot of growing season ahead of us yet, uh, which could change that picture. But, I mean, if, if we do turn around and put out a, a reasonable crop or a crop even close to what the USDA is projecting at this point, these are going to be uh, – relatively good price levels to uh, to be locking in. So Thank good. I mean, the, some of those carryout numbers could get uh, could get ugly if if the weather turns, if things cooperate. Well, I mean, you, you look at it beans, I guess, just on a domestic standpoint, we're, we're moving from a projected 230 million to 350 million. You know, we've got a little room to uh, to uh, soften that up a little bit, too. And still at, at 250 million, we're not in a critical situation for bean supplies. Then you go on to the the world situation, you know, the uh, with Brazil, you know, it, Take South America as a whole. I mean, you, you almost sure. have to throw them all together at this point. But even this year, South America as a whole, even with the disastrous situation in Argentina, is going to produce 9 million metric more tons of beans than it did a year ago. Jeez. So, I mean, those world-ending stocks are looking, I think, are 6 or 7 million metric tons higher than, than last year. And, of course, I mean, there's all the incentive in the world for them to come back with a big planting uh, this this fall or their spring again so it's you know there's a there's a lot of strikes working against the bean market for the longer term that being the case you know looking out november 24 at 1208 it's a 70 cent discount to sure. a november 23 dan are you selling any at north of 12 dollars you know 24? i i uh, hadn't i really haven't looked at it all that strong but I, I think it's a good point yes i i i would say you know you at least go out there you need to look out at a some minimal minimum purchases i mean maybe it's not over 20 percent, but i mean starting you get some things under the books there because like we're looking out into that area you know it, it's not difficult to think of beans in the 10 to 11 dollar range and maybe even back sub 10 dollars again yeah i mean every farmer around the world saw the prices that american farmers <laughs> saw here the last couple of years right. and they're all looking to get their right. slice of the pie yeah interestingly enough brazilian farmers have been a little bit hesitant on selling crops so far this year i know granted they usually market well uh, far more aggressively early on than we do here in north america but but that said you know they they have cash flow and needs too. They have storage issues, which is one of the problems they're, they're experiencing with the second corn crop right now. So, I mean, those bushels are going to move on to the market. If the dollar, you know, the dollar does have a major influence on that. 
Uh, you know, the real has rallied some from its extreme lows, but boy, certainly they have all the incentive in the world to keep pushing that production higher. All right. So that is going to keep coming. Dan, we've seen a little bit of a dis, uh, divergence here between soy oil and meal products. Mm -hmm. Are we just cranking hard on meal production? What's going on? Well, I think one, we're seeing some uh, usage slip in, uh, in Europe, you know, which was really one of the, uh, the stalwarts of, of uh, demand for, you know, and again, a lot of this comes back to the situation in Argentina, Argentina, a major supplier of meal to the world. But I think with, uh, you know, looking for alternatives for uh, for protein needs within the livestock rations. We're starting to see that demand drift away. Uh, you probably had pushed that spread between oil and meal out too far. A little bit of discussion again about where some renewable fuels and, mm -hmm. and how we're going to try to boost that production. Again, may, may be uh, difficult to sustain that for much longer, but I think you've seen a, a big unwinding of those meal oil spreads. And we maybe have pushed that about as far as we're going to go. Okay. All right. Might see that unwinding come to an end. Folks, we've been talking with Dan Huber, author of The Huber Report. Dan, as always, thanks for joining us and filling us in. My pleasure. Thanks very much. And stick around, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to dive deep on feed with David Fairfield of the National Grain and Feed Association here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us here on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month, we talked with Wendy Osborne of Ohio Corn and Ralph Lentz of the U.S. Meat Export Federation Board. Wendy, this partnership between grains and livestock is an important one, isn't it? Yeah, so corn growers recognize that 95% of the world's population lives outside the U.S., so trade is just so important to the U.S. farmer. And American corn farmers want to help increase demand for U.S. beef and pork around the world that in 2021, beef and pork exports, this is just the exports, Mike, they accounted for 537 million bushels of corn usage, which equates to about $2.94 billion. Ralph, that's a huge figure. What areas around the world look hot for meat exports in 2023? Anything in Asia, Korea, Japan, China, they, they all love our corn-fed beef. That's not duplicated anywhere in the world. Pork products are moving well. They've got a taste of our red meat, and they don't like fish anymore. They're moving more than red meats. Tune in Wednesday, July 5th for the next Monthly Grind on AOA. Get on board. The water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. Get on board. Put a frog in boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As veterans, we tell ourselves the lie that we can handle anything. We let the water boil. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi. 
I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we're going to turn our focus from the world of grains to the world of what those grains turn into, which in a large part remains animal feed here across the country. We've got a new piece of legislation introduced recently up on Capitol Hill in D.C. that could open the pathways for new opportunities in the world of livestock feed here in this country. Joining us to to walk us through this issue is David Fairfield. He serves as the Senior Vice President for Feed at the National Grain and Feed Association. David, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, of course, well, let's talk here first about this piece of legislation that was recently introduced. This is called the Innovative Feed Act. David, and tell us, what are these senators hoping to do? Well, I think the senators are hoping to provide uh, clear legal authority to FTA to approve certain feed additives that produce novel benefits things like reducing foodborne pathogens, altering emissions from an animal, or that can otherwise just improve uh, feed efficiency, growth production for livestock producers. Okay, so it sounds like we're, we're really kind of talking about a category feed, David, that's, that's not necessarily medication, but it's not necessarily strictly caloric intake either, right? It's more than just feed, but it's not quite drugs. Is that the issue? That's the issue. Uh, currently, the type of claims that I just reviewed, things like reducing food, foodborne pathogens or, or emissions or improving growth efficiency, those types of claims within FDA policy have been reserved for animal drugs. And the animal drug approval process is quite burdensome. It takes between 8 to 10 years for that to be completed. And so what this legislation would do is provide FDA clear legal authority for these types of products to be approved as feed additives and not animal drugs. All right. So what would that do in terms of getting these additives, the researched and approved and into diets? Would this accelerate it by a few years, David? Well, as I mentioned, the animal drug approval process typically can take eight to 10 years. Uh, In contrast, the, the feed additive approval process within FDA normally takes between two to three years. And so there's a, a time frame there that, that can be uh, streamlined, hopefully. These products will still go through a thorough and robust FDA review, but hopefully the, the reduced burden in terms of time would spur on innovation for companies to bring new technologies to market and invest in research. 
Absolutely. We've got to have a clear pathway forward in order to do that. And David, I'm wondering about our, our international competitors around the world. Have we seen other states move to, to grant this sort of uh, approval authority for their governments of, of feed additives? That's absolutely right. Um, there are a number of countries around the world that have already uh, created a similar type of category for feed additives. And so if, um, if this legislation can be enacted through Congress, it will really modernize U.S. policy and allow us to complete on, compete on a global basis. Are there any concerns from the feed industry, David? Anytime we're, we're bringing a new regulatory authority into being, of, of course, it changes the way we do business. What are you hearing from inside the industry as this moves forward? I think there's widespread support for the legislation. There have been some concerns raised by certain groups uh, related to if, if FDA has authority to approve these products with these types of claims, would, there, would the use of these products somehow become mandatory by producers in the future? Uh, we don't believe that that's going to happen short-term or long-term. Uh, we, don't, we don't support that type of uh, policy if it were to be introduced. We believe producers should have the ability to, to feed what they think is, is right for their animals, for their own operations. We don't foresee um, these types of feed additives becoming mandatory in use at any time in the future. But that is one concern that's been raised. Okay. All right. That makes sense. It's always good to have a, have a holistic view. And David, I, I'm wondering if we could dig a little deeper into what these additives are. You mentioned for perhaps improving emissions releases from livestock. I've heard a lot about seaweed with regard to that particular issue. Would seaweed be an additive such that this new thing could, uh, could then regulate? I think that that's a good example. Um, sea kelp is being fed already. There's a lot of research that demonstrates that it reduced methane production in, in cattle, dairy, cows. Um, that would be an example of a product who could go through, which could go through this type of process within FDA and be marketed with, a, with an environmental claim if um, the data supports that. Okay, so that would allow the, the producer using that technology to incorporate that potentially into their marketing. And David, that makes me wonder, of course, so when we're marketing our feed and our livestock, we're selling it around the world into different countries. Is there any risk that approving these sort of feed attitudes or at these, these sort of feed additives could impact our export business? Well, I think F FDA's process through the food additive uh, petition review includes safety and efficacy. And so I would not envision that any product approved by FDA would represent any, any type of safety concern for the animal or for animal-based foods that are, that are derived from livestock production. All right. That is good to hear. David, what's the backing of, of other ag organizations? Has this bill found favorable support so far upon its introduction? Yes, it has. Um, the National Grain and Feed Association obviously endorsed it as well as the American Feed Industry Association, the National Milk Producers Federation, National Council of Farmers Cooperatives. We all um, endorsed the legislation when it was introduced. We recently uh, provided a, a letter of support to the Senate. We had about 130 different organizations sign on supporting the initiative. So we're, we're, uh, we're hopeful that it can make it through through the Senate. Uh, it's currently being uh, considered by the Senate Health Co Committee right now. 
as they look to reauthorize the Animal Drug User Fee Amendments Act. So we're hopeful this legislation can be introduced uh, through that through that act. All right. And I, I guess it is worth noting this does have strong bipartisan support. Of course, Roger Marshall, Republican of Kansas, Tammy Baldwin, Democrat of Wisconsin, Jerry Moran, Republican of Kansas, and Michael Bennett, a Democrat out of Colorado. Those are the four co-sponsors on the Senate side. Uh, it's always nice to have that kind of backing, isn't it, Dave, when we're up on Capitol Hill? We certainly need that kind of backing. Um, there's not a lot of bi bipartisan um legislation that, that makes, makes it all the way through Congress these days, but I think this is one, one act that has the potential to do that. That is good to hear. David, while we've got you on the line, of course, feed has been a topic of concern for livestock feeders across the country, as we've seen uh, values certainly be volatile since coronavirus. Before we let you go, any other thoughts for, for producers on the feed front here as you look ahead to, uh, to issues that could confront us over the summer? Well, I, th I think you're right. I mean, uh, grain prices have increased, feed prices have increased along the way. I think that um, the animal feed industry is trying to take steps to provide nutritional products in, in, a, in the most efficient and effective manner to support the, the livestock industry. Um, this act that we're talking about today is just another, another step in that process in, in being able to bring technology innovation to market that will allow uh, animal agriculture to succeed in the United States. So hopefully we can keep the keep the process moving forward. Absolutely, folks. A successful, strong animal agriculture industry in the United States helps support a successful, strong grain industry here in the United States. David, of course, NGFA, you folks are always working on a number of issues on Capitol Hill and across the country. Can you tell our listeners where they can go to keep up to speed on the work that uh, you're doing over there at the association? Yeah, we have a we have a good website, um, ngfa.org. So I would invite any folks who want to learn more about our association and the issues that we think are important for the for the grain and feed industry to to visit that website and take a look. Absolutely, folks, check that out. Keep it top of mind, especially if you are one of those many, many folks across the country who rely on grain and feed. We've been talking today with David Fairfield. He serves as the Senior Vice President for Feed at the National Grain and Feed Association. David, thank you so much for joining us on AOA today. Thank you again for the opportunity. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk with Glenn Tonser of Kansas State about the meat demand monitor here for this past month. Also, what he's watching as we look ahead to feeder cattle economics in this incredibly volatile time. We'll do that after we get back from the break. But before we let you go, we did just get a study out from the Kiev School of Economics in Ukraine. Following the dam burst and the shelling that has happened across that country, they say the agricultural sector in Ukraine could take 20 years or more to recover from the ravages of the Russian invasion. And they're saying that could hurt Ukrainian grain production well into the future. Folks, leave it here. We'll have more AOA coming up with Glenn Tonser of Kansas State when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What's your favorite talk show? Where do you hear music that transports you to another time? 
in an emergency. Where do you turn for the most up-to-date information? Well, 80 million Americans depend on AM radio each month. It's the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping the public safe in dangerous times. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com, tell us why, and you could win $500. It's that easy. Visit whyilisten.com today. That's whyilisten.com. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder. Being themselves is second nature. Summer Camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting with this market update. Well, the grains and oil seeds having a very strong day on Thursday as traders continue to keep an eye on the weather forecast here as we head to the weekend. There are some chances for rain in the forecast, but overall, Midwest crop ratings continuing to slide lower as a predominantly dry pattern is hanging over the region. Now, mild temperatures have helped offset the stress from the dryness, but water is still needed for crops. And the long-anticipated pattern change tied to El Nino did start last weekend, but an upper-level low got cut off in the atmosphere, and that's expected to slowly drift into the southeast in the days ahead, dragging moisture down with it leaving much of the Midwest dry. So it's something we're keeping our eyes on. Areas of most concern right now continue to be northern Illinois, eastern Iowa, much of Minnesota, and Wisconsin. We'll be watching that uh, latest drought monitor out Thursday to see what the expansion of drought looks like across the Corn Belt. Now, this is not a repeat of 2012. There are many differences. Some folks trying to compare it to 2012, but we are uh, not necessarily the same as back then. We are beginning to see a drag, though, on U.S. corn producing potential. Is it enough to necessitate demand rationing? Well, that remains to be seen. But overall, again, concerns about the dryness is really playing into the markets here today, and that's spilling over into the soy complex as well, which is trading higher. In fact, soybeans are the upside leader along with new crop corn and the wheat trade having a decent day as well. Weekly export sales were okay for especially U.S. soybeans here this week. Meantime, we look over at livestock. The hog trade is having a moderately higher day while we see more liquidation in cattle. The feeder cattle market being hammered here on this Thursday, and that's spilling over into the fat cattle as well. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. 
This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today. And ordinarily, when we turn our focus over to the protein markets, we tend to either talk demand with our friends in the restaurant and food service business, or we talk supply with our friends on the ground with the livestock. This next segment, we're going to combine the two a little bit. We're going to kick things off uh, with the demand conversation with Dr. Glenn Tonser of Kansas State University. He's recently compiled the monthly demand monitor for meat in the month of May. Then we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening on the ground with his feedlot economics that he researches. So we're going to get into all of that. Dr. Tonser, thanks so much for joining us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Let's kick things off here with the Meat Demand Monitor. Glenn, if you would, for listeners who have maybe not heard us discuss this yet, what is the Meat Demand Monitor? Yeah, so it's a project based here at Kansas State University, beef and pork checkoff funded. We launched it in February of 2020, and it's a nationally representative survey of U.S. residents. So that includes both meat and non-meat consumers. Over 2,000 people every month, 1,000 retail and 1,000 food service uh, targeted surveys every month. So it's a deep dive into all things meat. It's a deep dive into all things meat. And as you mentioned, so many different categories of meat and how consumers are are choosing between them. Glenn, so let's dive in. Let's talk first about the retail level. These are consumers going to the meat case, correct, at their grocery store. How are they feeling about prices? Yeah, so our, our metrics on retail demand, as you said, grocery store for at-home consumption, is May improved on April. Uh, we monitor a couple beef, a couple pork, you know, chicken, and other categories. And across the board, we had some improvement in May, which is very welcomed. Uh, the last several times you've had me on here, we've had slippage. So that's a nice change of course. It is. Glenn, are we seeing it across the board? Yeah, pretty much across those proteins within the grocery space, May looked better than April, uh, getting close to where May of 2022 was. And I'm interjecting that because, I mean, you and I can just wet the whistle on these topics in these segments. But those that uh, see value in this info can go to our agmanager.info website and get full reports. And the end of May, I actually did a deep dive into uh, documenting trends in domestic meat demand, showing it peaked in 2022, uh, the middle of 22 specifically and tied that to financial sentiment of households. So uh, specifically, Mike, in April of 23, 80% say their household finances are the same or worse than they were the year earlier, which tells us only 20% say they've improved. And in that report, I tie that to key differences in demand, both for beef and pork. So uh, hopefully that story is getting better with narrative about inflation slowing and so forth. Um, but we definitely have a pocket squeeze for most households. Glenn, I'm wondering if we could take a step back while we're talking about demand, maybe maybe spend a minute telling us how you calculate demand. Because as I look at the meat case and I see prices at record levels on the beef side, to be sure, out there right now, I think, well, if prices are that high, demand must be phenomenal to support those prices. But uh, could you tell us how you look at it? Yeah, so, so statements about demand need to reflect both the volume that moves and the price that's paid. Uh, perhaps the biggest misnomer is actually not just to look at the price, as you said, but to look at you know a per capita consumption number. So USDA puts out a per capita consumption number, and that's just a estimate of the volume of something, in your example, beef, but it's done for pork, chicken, other categories, 
that we think went through the U.S. system. And that's valuable, right? I mean, that gets into supply availability, net of trade, but that itself tells us nothing about price. And then when you bring in information about price, as you said, I marry the two up to make a comment. The simplest example for your listeners, Mike, would be if in one year we managed to produce and market more beef in the U.S. and the price received for beef went up, I know very clearly that demand went up because you pushed a higher volume something through a market at a higher price. Most years, there's this price quantity trade-off. So you need to do some, let's call it geeky economist math to say if demand went up or not. Okay. That makes sense. It's got to be both factors. We cannot just look at the price, even though the price is definitely what grabs my attention when I'm standing at the meat case right now. Let's turn the focus, Glenn, over to food service. While we're still looking at meat demand, we've seen restaurant prices accelerate. Are we seeing consumers start to say, hey, maybe we've maxed it out? Yeah, I would call May kind of flat, depending on which category, you know, which species we'd look at. There's a few examples. So example, beef pulled back or was flat, pork pulled back or was flat, uh, chicken breast was up uh, just a hair, and then seafood was up a little bit more uh, when we look through food service, uh, but no big changes. And I'll remind folks, if you pull up the past few months, I do think consumers have said, whoa, these prices, you know, particularly away from home, uh, we're going to choose to eat at home instead. And that's a bit of a, you know, I don't think we're officially in a recession, but a kind of a classical recession response is if household finances are being squeezed, people tend to consume at home more. Uh, you know, they're willing to prepare their own meal more and so forth as part of their own way to save. And that shows up in a little bit softer food service demand. Does that also show up, Glenn? I know you do directly ask where people are eating their prior day's meal. Are you seeing that reflected there? That that's a little bit lower um, away from home rates than a year ago, but not drastic. Uh, I think what we're seeing instead is, you know, if, if you went back to working in person for, you know, you're not at home, you're still eating lunch away from home, but maybe you're eating a cheaper lunch. So the away from home versus at home hasn't changed a lot, but exactly where, you know, at when, if you're eating it away from home, where you're getting it. And if you're supersizing the meal or not, you know, if you're paying those up charges or not, those kind of distinctions are becoming more distinct. All right, Glenn, that certainly makes some sense. Now, now let's let's take this to the next level. We've talked about how the cattle feeder, the cow-calf producer out there now, we've got some pretty good times in that country. We're finally seeing some, some black ink for that industry. But looking at these price levels, looking at these demand levels, Glenn, what concerns do you have here for the cattle feeder as you look out for the remainder of summer 2023? Well, perhaps the biggest concern for a current cattle feeder is, am I going to be able to keep the yard full? So that's not necessarily for this summer, but when I think out to Q4 and certainly into you know, 2024, it's the volume of feeder cattle that's available to place is top of mind. Um, a little bit more immediate here would be is whether or not I need to think about locking in these higher prices or not. Um, to each is their own. There's several fundamental reasons that we have higher fed cattle prices. Several are optimistic they'll be sustained or go higher due to supply side forces. So I'm not sitting here telling somebody to lock it in, but the agmanager.info resource every month we put out a feedlot uh, margins basically a unhedged margin uh, for cattle leaving the yard cattle leaving the yard june through november uh here in kansas are projected to have one to two hundred dollar per head returns now it depends on which month exactly that number but historically those are pretty large margins so there are some hedgeable opportunities for those that want to look into that uh, others that want to remain exposed uh, i totally understand that as well 
Glenn, those are pretty staggering statistics, 150 to $200 margins. Of course, that's nothing compared to what the Packer was making in 2020, 2021. But how long has it been since we've seen an unhedged cattle feeder be able to, to have a market provide those sort of margins? Do we have to go back to 2015, 2014? So, so there's individual months that have occurred off and on since then. But you would have to go back to uh, 2016, early 2017 to find a multi-month run, you know, think six to eight months of sustained margins above a hundred bucks. Um, and some of that's just, again, fundamentals of where we were at at the time. Uh, my word of caution would be, and a little bit of this is Dr. Bayer, so I'll apologize in advance of that, is th these numbers do presume you've kept the yard full. So you're able to spread your fixed cost over, you know, a planned number. So if you have a 20,000 head feed yard, you've actually got 20,000 head, right? Most of the time going through it. Going forward, that's going to be hard. So I think these margins are attractive for sure, and they are welcomed by those in the industry, 100% get that. But I would encourage folks to think about not just the next few months of those positive margins, but how to think about those as part of surviving the next two or three years with lower throughput. Lower throughput, lower just absolute volume of feeders. Glenn, do you think we are starting to see the cattle herd rebuild? Are you hearing across Kansas? I know your state is still gripped in drought. Any producers there across Kansas uh, actively looking to expand on the cow-calf side? Yeah, well, well, I mean, here in Kansas, the most common would be is if able start to build back to where they were. So the expand versus get back where we were are two different narratives. Um, so if I have a hundred cow herd and I'm now at 80 for drought reasons, step one is to kind of get to hundred when I can to spread my fixed cost back like the way I wanted to. That's not the same as going from hundred to 120 when I've never been at 120 before. Most in Kansas are not positioned and maybe not even interested in a net expansion quite yet. They want to experience one or two good uh, years of returns before they do that. And they're kind of in a more, can we repopulate mode? But I think there's other regions of the country that might actually be trying to do some net expansion, and we'll learn more about that in the next six months. It's all coming. Glenn, you mentioned the risks that are ahead with that tight feeder market, the risks that are ahead with fat cattle. Obviously, we know these markets are volatile. Any, any special concerns since we're hitting these peaks here in the summer on the fat cattle side? Uh, I don't know any special ones. I mean, we started this with meat demand. You know, meat demand is softened compared to a year ago, but context is important is it's still above what it was pre-pandemic. Uh, that is important in the ability to sustain elevated, in this case, beef cutout values, but to round it out also for pork and so forth. Um, we can't take that for granted. Uh, there's definitely, if, if in fact we have a recession and things get worse, that would put downward pressure on fed cattle prices specifically. So that's out there. And if you're worried about that, that's one of the reasons to think about hedging. But supply fundamentals are definitely in favor of those that own assets that are in shrinking availability, and that is live cattle. It certainly is. Glenn, of course, as you mentioned, your team has researched and publishes a lot of information at that re, uh, agmanager.info resource. What else can folks find there? So, I mean, yeah, pretty much anything that I'm associated with um, that's a public talk or a public report, you can find there under the livestock and meat section. There's also grain-oriented stuff, um, you know, land values. You know, I have several colleagues in the Agicon department that do a wealth of good work as well. It is a fantastic resource, folks. So check it out, agmanager.info. We've been talking with Dr. Glenn Tonser of Kansas State Ag Economics. Dr. Tonser, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Mike. And stick around, ladies and gentlemen. We'll have more AOA coming up here in just a moment. 
Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us here on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month, we talked with Wendy Osborne of Ohio Corn and Ralph Lentz of the U.S. Meat Export Federation Board. Wendy, this partnership between grains and livestock is an important one, isn't it? Yeah, so corn growers recognize that 95% of the world's population lives outside the U.S., so trade is just so important to the U.S. farmer. And American corn farmers want to help increase demand for U.S. beef and pork around the world that in 2021, Beef and pork exports, this is just the exports, Mike, they accounted for 537 million bushels of corn usage, which equates to about $2.94 billion. Ralph, that's a huge figure. What areas around the world look hot for meat exports in 2023? Anything in Asia, Korea, Japan, China, they they all love our corn-fed beef. That's not duplicated anywhere in the world. Pork products are moving well. They've got a taste of our red meat, and they don't like fish anymore. They're moving more than red meats. Tune in Wednesday, July 5th for the next Monthly Grind on AOA. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 
That's 800-209-6416. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers, and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues this morning, and we're going to take a look south of the border. Mexican grain is in the news once again. Now, we've been talking about this on the AOA program for about six months. AMLO, uh, president of Mexico, is looking to ban the importation of, of GMO white corn here by the January 1st, 2024, and that's created some geopolitical tensions between the Mexican government and the United States government as they work towards a resolution. But it turns out that's not the only issue in Mexico for Mexican grain farmers right now. On Tuesday of this week, operations at about 20 different airports were interrupted, excuse me, operations in 20 different states across northern uh, uh, Mexico, with one airport, the one in Sinaloa, seeing its flights disrupted by Mexican grain farmers who are petitioning the state for a minimum floor price of grain. Uh, They are looking to see the president of Mexico guarantee prices for corn, wheat, and sorghum. The Mexican growers argue that government intervention is a vital uh, issue in order needed to stop the steep drop in international prices. Of course, we were talking with Dan Huber earlier in the program about what's happened here in the corn market. We have seen Chicago uh, corn price drop just about 20% from where it was a year ago. The wheat market, 43% lower. And farmers have been requesting the Mexican government to guarantee the price of corn at 7,000 pesos per ton. That would be about $402 per ton. Wheat, they'd like to see $465 per ton. And sorghum, they're pushing for $374 per ton, and they're hoping that these price jumps will help keep these Mexican farmers in business. Now, this letter was presented to the Mexican government several weeks ago. There was no response. Because of that, this group of farmers then began their march, starting at the Culiacan Airport, and then, of course, uh, blocking those flights going further. Now, this does seem to have uh, have pushed some action. Sinaloan Governor Ruben Roca asked farmers to protest instead and uh, to protest commodity traders instead, and he 
suggested they go protest at Cargill's door. Unsure if this is actually going to prompt the Mexican government to promote any sort of guaranteed pricing, haven't seen a response from the government as of yet, but we will continue to keep an eye on it. Back home in our shores, we've got the USDA under fire over again the past several months. Several environmental groups have presented surveys or petitions to the USDA arguing that the antibiotic-free label on meat isn't strict enough. These groups cite uh, some recent studies that show that as many as 42% of cattle raised in reportedly antibiotic feedlots have tested positive for antibiotic residue. USDA has been taking a look at these petitions and it was announced early on Thursday that they are going to take steps to better verify those antibiotic-free labels on meat and poultry products. We don't yet know what the increased uh, testing is going to look like. The USDA Food Sur Safety and Inspection Service has announced their plans to revise their guidelines, and what they're going to try to do is encourage companies to use third-party certification on their label uh, claims. The last time we saw these antibiotic-free uh, claims guidelines updated was 2019, so it does seem as though it is worthwhile to bring those back up to speed a little bit. While we're here in the United States talking about Congress, there was a bill that was recently passed out of the House Appropriations Committee. Now, this was a big bill. It was its uh, its purported purpose is to fund the USDA and FDA. This is a, a bill that has to go through the appro Appropriations Committee. They pick and choose the amount of discretionary funding that these products need to, or these priorities need to receive. And this particular bill was approved out of the House Appropriations Committee 34 to 27. It was a state or a straight party line vote. What was interesting is there was a phrase in the bill that would encourage the USDA to take, quote, such steps as may be necessary, unquote, to prevent foreign nationals in four different countries from buying farmland. The four countries aimed at by this piece of legislation are China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. And this piece of legislation would force the USDA to take a look at any farmland sales proposed by foreign nationals of those countries or by companies owned in whole or in part by those countries as well. It's not quite sure exactly what the USDA could do. There is understandably some pushback coming from the other side of the aisle arguing that the USDA does not have the authority to get involved in overseas purchases of lands. They say instead the USDA could alert the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. That's the CFIS Committee. They do oversee foreign purchases of land. And uh, Mike Simpson of Idaho says that perhaps is where this ought to be going. Looking out at other issues moving around the world, for the first time in three weeks, ethanol production ticked lower in this last week. Production of ethanol dropped to an average of 1.018 million barrels per day. That's on the week ending June 9th. That's down just about 18 million bushels from the previous week. The shock was in the Midwest. Typically, the biggest producing region output has fallen to 961 barrels per day. It's about a 20,000 barrel per day drop from the week prior. Understandable. We are chewing through most of that old crop corn here throughout the heartland. Availability of feedstocks is getting a little bare, and we're starting to see some plants shut down or at least slow down production for maintenance. Looking at other issues that are moving agriculture, one we talked about briefly earlier this week is the proposed takeover of Viterra by Bungie. This would create a much larger ag uh 
trading company, and particularly in soybean oil and meal processing. This is where a Bungie-Vitera combination could have very outsized powers, and those powers could be especially acute in the country of Argentina. We saw the Argentinian government announced a formal notification that they will be reviewing that Bungie-Vitera deal. This is the proposal that would create a $34 billion grain trading conglomerate. It's not expected to see much pushback here in the United States, but Argentina, that review is beginning, and Europe is where that Bungie-Vitera deal could see additional headaches as they try to push that thing across the finish line. Folks, be sure to tune in to AOA tomorrow. We're going to dig back into the hog industry with our friends at the National Pork Producers Council. We're also going to talk Talk with geopolitical strategist John Pulsman about what's developing around the world. Thanks for listening to AOA. We'll see you tomorrow right here. Take care, everybody. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. We, 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 we are, are the, the Foundation, foundation Fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.